I'm Miles, and I'm here to understand the mysteries of romance. And I'm Megan Bob, and I'm here to help with the aid of one of my favorite romance novels, A Duke in Disguise by Cat Sebastian. This is the next wrestling fan after dark. Thank you all for uh, joining us here on this bonus episode of The Next Wrestling Fan, The Next Wrestling Fan After Dark. For the fourth time over the course of our NXT coverage, Bob has earned 10 points in the Cheap Pop Quiz. And as you know, every time they do that, we cover a romance novel that they love and that they want me to read. Yeah. So this time around, we are doing a Duke in Disguise. So if you're, if you're following the trajectory of this, we did the Duchess Deal, which was great. Yes. We did the Eros Effect, which was another Regency, and that was also very good. Less sexy. Yes. Still very good. Then Bob decided to step outside the comforting boundaries of the Regency era and into the cold, frozen wastes of Ice Planet Barbarians. <laughs> I um, nearly killed Miles. My, my, look, my genitals got frostbite, is uh, all I'm going to say. I understand. <laughs> Which is not to say we're never going to step out of this uh, this box again, but I think Bob was of the opinion that after going to uh, the romance novel equivalent of Hoth, of Horny Hoth, <laughs> yes. we needed to sort of warm ourselves by the fire of Regency uh, for a little while before possibly venturing out again. So we are here with a Duke in disguise, Bob. Uh, I want to hear what you have to say about this book before we get started, because I got to tell you, I really enjoyed it. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. This is a book that is explicitly political in a way that is even beyond the way that Eris Effect is political. And I wanted to give you a little bit of uh, context mm -hmm. about Cat Sebastian as an author. Yes. Cat uh, Sebastian sort of self-describes as an author who writes Marxist tracts with gay kissing. That is a lot of what they write. This one isn't as gay, but this is no. certainly what they typically do. And I prepared a little essay for this one to kind of help give context for where romance is as a genre with regard to politics. Okay. Lay it on me. So you might have heard about the intertwining of romance and politics in this last election cycle. And we have to address the actual elephant in the room about the political parties and say that Trump and the Republican Party as a whole is often very cynical. It's not about moving towards something else, unless that something else is like more of the status quo. And I guess there's arguments to be had about individual freedoms. But I think that's why romance tends to be deeply progressive as a genre, like a relationship isn't about just individual freedoms. All relationships are built on what we need and can give to mm. one another. And it's not about fixing another person. It's about everyone realizing that they were never broken to begin with, even if they might have felt that way. A lot of people who identify as Republican have this weird, like, cognitive dissonance going on where mm. they feel a certain way about those who are close to them and a different way about anybody outside their circle. So, like... One of the defining traits, in my mind, of 
the Republican base, mm-hmm. and I don't mean to insult anybody because I'm I'm trying to be respectful about this, is that they have a hard time extending their empathy quite as far as a lot of people on the left do. Indeed. Um, a lot of the rules of compassion and love and connectedness that might apply to, say, their spouse or their children, they find difficult to apply to people they don't know. Ah, and and we wind back around. So mm. I'm going to return to politics for just a second and say, 2020 has been the year when the wider world noticed that romance has something to say about politics. Faded Mates, a romance podcast done by Sarah McLean, and you're going to find out more about Sarah McLean one of these days. They, yeah. they did phone banking for the general election and for the Georgia runoffs. Uh, Black romance authors Alyssa Cole and Stacey Abrams worked mm. together to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for the Georgia runoffs, and both of them write romance starring uh, Black heroes and heroines and sometimes interracial or intercultural relationships as well. Alyssa Cole, in her NPR interview, put it thus, As far as romance novels and politics go, for people who are engaged in progressive politics, there is a link between the idea of optimism. One of the things that gets the reader through the book is knowing that at the end of the book, there will be some kind of resolution that leaves them feeling satisfied and uplifted. And I think people who read those kinds of romance novels and who write those kinds of romance novels are also seeking that in their real life. And given the state of the world today, have had more opportunity to actively try and impact the world in the way that they enjoy reading about. So romance novels are almost always dealing with politics in some way, whether that's the gender politics of women being allowed to enjoy things that are made for them, sort of the meta politics of it, the politics Mm -hmm. of how consent is approached in the romance novel, just inside and outside the romance novels and politics are mm, very, very mixed. Kat Sebastian is an author that cares deeply about the political realities that come with entering into historical romance in particular. Sebastian said, And also, I like class. It's just there in Hayer. It's certainly there in Austin. The characters are so very conscious of it. What will happen Mm. if they slip down one rung on the ladder? And so I want to write about what happens when they do slip down a rung on the ladder. What if slipping down that rung or several rungs is the price they have to pay for being with the person they want to be with or for being true to themselves in some way? I like Mm. looking at class as not always going to go up. Sometimes you're going to go down, and then what happens? What that, what's that going to be like? That was from a chat with Kat Sebastian about writing queer characters in historical romance by Kelly Faircloth. So let's be honest. The romance novel is a place of safety and comfort, and that means that rarely are the concerns going to be prosaic ones about where your next meal is coming from. Although Kat Sebastian has written about characters that sometimes do have to think really pragmatically about such concerns, There's one character that's a confidence trickster because fleecing the upper classes is a good way to pay the bills. And honestly, who is it hurting? Well, the rich, but that's sort of the point. I imagine, yeah, right? I imagine that uh, when you're doing that, there's kind of a fine line to be walked between writing a romance novel with politics in it and writing a political novel with romance in it. You know what I mean? Mm, I think so. As we talked in the very first time we did this, there are some realities that to the structure of the romance novel that sort of mm-hmm. dictate whether or not it is one. I, but I would be interested exactly. to see the world in which there was a political novel that attempted to be a romance novel. Although I will tell you, there is an entire genre of romance novels that are all political romance novels. It is 1,000% about fucking in the Capitol building. <laughs> I mean, I... 
I totally get it. Like, I think that there's... I don't really, I don't I, but I get, like, <laughs> power is sexy. I get, like, that as a... If somebody said, like, oh, yeah, you know, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, or whatever the fuck it is. Um, and that is that is correct. Yeah, nailed it. Um, don't remember what it means. Not gonna. All right. But <laughs> if somebody said that, I'm like, okay, I recognize that, but I don't, like, feel it. So, I don't know. Here, tell, give me your pitch on political romance as a thing. Politics is something that a lot of people is very central in their lives, you mm-hmm. know, and, and I'm not just talking about like politicians, but like anyone who pays attention, politics is just like how we choose to interact with the wider world. And when mm-hmm. people say they're not political, it just means they're like not choosing to think about it. Mm-hmm. But like, I, I can't imagine like not thinking of politics as something that close to me that affects me that I would want to be dealing with. I was a protagonist in any kind of novel <laughs> and like romance is like that too. So like, I, I kind of see politics and romance both as like really fundamental things that you have to deal with as part of life. So it makes sense to combine them. Mm. It's just interesting because like, like you said, romance novels do have a certain structure to them. And if they don't have that structure, it can be hard to call them a romance novel because a lot of books have romance in them mm-hmm. like a lot of the books have a romance like involve two characters falling in love and even having sex explicitly mm-hmm. but if the story but it, but it seems to me that a romance novel has to be about two people or more i suppose but about people in a relationship nope they've got rules about that can only be two people oh really yeah they're not they're not ready for more than that yet but uh okay. people are working on that <laughs> but we'll see yeah, uh, I think that's bullshit. Yeah, same. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm not Polly, but I think that's bullshit. But um, the a romance novel is fundamentally about the relationship between these people and how they come together, right? Like that's what it has to be. So you can throw a skin on any th- on you can throw any kind of skin on that framework. It's very right? and true. It's going to be a romance novel. I don't see why politics should be any different from anything else. But I do think that like that's different than writing a political story in which people fuck because oh, I yeah. I am certain that there's a lot of sex involved in politics. I've never been in politics, but there has to be just right? tons of sex involved in politics. I just can't imagine that world where that's not a form of like currency almost. Just like yeah, a, a normal way of being. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. maybe it's not that seedy. Maybe it's far more prosaic than that, but I, yeah. I doubt it. I, I find that... I'm pretty sure it's that seedy. <laughs> I know. I was going to say, I find that real hard to believe. So the politics of romance novels are also much more deeply embedded in that. And Alyssa Cole put it this way. What do you imagine when you hear the term romance novel? What kind of protagonist mm. do you picture? Who do you expect will fall in love with them? And then now you have your answer. Like, and who yeah. whoever you imagine is political in a fashion. And this head white. Yeah, of course. Exactly. And like, that's normal like that. There's no getting around the fact that we're products of our culture and that creatively we produce what our culture teaches us. So enter the magic of romance novels. Because sure, they give us those good, good emotions. But more than that, they also give us deep access to the humanity of the protagonists you would be very Mm. hard-pressed to find a romance novel that isn't written in alternating close third-person perspective where you feel what the characters feel and experience the world in many ways exactly how the characters do. So getting that close to someone else's lived experience is a kind of rare narrative feat. 
And Kat Sebastian wrote this about it. Books can immerse readers in any kind of life, the queer, the disabled, the person of color, but romance is the only genre that demands a happy ending. It structures the entire story around that demand and takes the readers along with it. This isn't just empathy. It is a restructuring of the way people think of other human beings. Who deserves and should expect happiness? Who can be loved? There are no other books that insist on joy and love as an end in itself. This is nothing less than radical. Love and partnership haven't always been between men and women. Gender hasn't always been understood as binary. Sexuality and sex have existed in all their forms this entire time. This can again help us see that people deserve happiness, even when the structures of society conspire against them, even when their contemporaries fail to recognize their humanity. We can witness the denial of rights and acknowledge the many different ways that people have been able to thrive and persevere despite injustice. We can grapple with the failures of the past and see how those old patterns repeat in the present. We can also perhaps begin to rewrite some of that history and begin to imagine it and see it for what it really was. So A Duke in Disguise blatantly addresses class struggle, living with disability, the rights and personhood of women, the fact that Mm -hmm. bisexual people exist and have just always existed, the realities Mm -hmm. of what is censored and why. Like, the book overflows with politics right at the surface, but all romance novels have a political bent to them. It's just now that we're starting to address it as an explicit choice that the novel tackles directly. And don't expect to see this going away anytime soon. The politics of who we humanize, who we are meant to feel empathy for, that is part of the ongoing work of romance as a genre. And if you've talked to or listened to queer people discuss media, the phrase barrier gaze comes up pretty fast. It's the tendency to kill off queer characters rather than fold them into the happy ending. Romance takes the opposite approach. The main character always gets a happy ending. Always. No matter what society at large might feel about them, no matter what marginalized identities they might hold, no matter that their existence might be deemed inconvenient or even illegal, they get a happy ending. And there is something profoundly radical on insisting on the rights of marginalized people to have joy and happiness. There is something radical also in pointing directly to the systems of oppression at work that are marginalizing these people. Romance has long been pointing at the patriarchy as a source of oppressing men and women. Writers like Kat Sebastian, Alyssa Cole, Beverly Jenkins, KJ Charles, Courtney Milan, and others are starting to point at other systems through their work. Pointing at white supremacy, at the class system, at heteronormativity at every place in which power is unequal. Wrestling is getting there. If perhaps more (laughs) slowly and less obviously, there are openly gay wrestlers. There are openly trans wrestlers. There are black wrestlers uplifting blackness. There are finally, although not frequently enough, some diverse body types out there. Yeah. There are a lot of systems of oppression out there, but romance is inherently optimistic. Romance believes that a better world is possible and that one place that starts is with recognizing our deep and shared humanity by identifying with the happiness of people who are different from us. Mm. And maybe it also starts a little bit with eating the rich. But (laughs) that's all to say that this is a book that makes it very plain that our identities are political, that our existence is political, and that our happiness is political. And then it sticks Mm -hmm. middle fingers into the air and dares you to stand in its way. And you can perhaps see why I chose this book to discuss with Miles. Miles, (laughs) back when you 
read your very first romance novel, you said to me, yes. I wasn't expecting themes. <laughs> yeah. And when I think of that, I'm reminded immediately of my own classist assumptions that wrestling wasn't going to have something to say about the world either. Mm. And boy, do I know better now. Yeah. Miles, I suspect after this book is, you know, which is something of an oops, all themes sort of novel, <laughs> you'd probably have something to say to your pre-romance self too. And oh, I yeah. wanted to say, that's a really good thing. That means yeah. we're growing. Yeah. If you never look back and think you were an idiot for your past assumptions, that's when you have a problem. So in closing, I'll say that this isn't, I would say, the hottest or most raucous fun you can have in a romance novel. And it may not set your heart alight in the way that some of the others do. But it's a powerful argument for what romance can give us, which is hope and resilience and happiness. And in a world that begs us to be cynical, that is a hell of a bold flag to plant. Agreed. That's beautiful. I think in terms of, purely in terms of writing, mm -hmm. I think this is the best written romance novel I've read so far. I would tend to agree with you. Cat Sebastian is into craft in a really strong way that is different. It's like Cat mm -hmm. Sebastian writes romance like somebody who hasn't read a lot of romance novels, which I don't think is true. Yeah. I just think the style is really kind of singular. Yeah, their their work is, especially at the beginning, I was really struck by the poetic quality of the imagery that they were using and just like the way they were writing scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and it just struck me as someone who is really skilled. like could write anything. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, writing quality off the charts. Sexing is honestly fairly high up there for me. I, I definitely not um, at the level of Tessa Dare. I haven't no. read Tessa anybody Dare is yet who very special. I haven't read anybody yet who uh, writes sexy like she does. Mm -hmm. um, and it's possibly because she writes a lot of my kind of sexy, mm -hmm. at least so far. You know what I mean? Like I very, you know, I can kind of, whereas like this book, and I want to talk about this later uh, in the Mansplanation, but this book has a lot of stuff in the sex scenes that I don't necessarily relate to or like find super sexy. I know what you mean. So like, I'm, you know, I'm not going to like have all the horny feelings about them, but I did really appreciate that Cat Sebastian is making an effort to bring in things in sex and kinds of sex and at sex acts that aren't necessarily thought of as the norm. And again, I want to talk about that later. Yeah, I, um, I'm excited to hear your thoughts about that. And with that, Miles, mansplain mm. away. So, we open with John Ashby, Ash to his friends. Um, yes, this is another Regency-era romance novel where the male protagonist is a duke named Ash, and I am starting to think that all the best ones involve dukes named Ash, because <laughs> the numbers are really skewing that way. 50%! Yeah. <laughs> There's even an ill-tempered cat in this book, just like mm -hmm. in Dutch Steel. So, Cat, Cat Sebastian was like, hmm, that's a really nice idea for a romance novel you got there, Tessa Dare. <laughs> Be a shame if somebody 
made all the characters seditious radicals who want to guillotine the ruling class. (laughs) But no, honestly, the two books are actually very different. I just thought the similarities were funny. So Ash is an engraver and an artist uh, who he's a tradesman, right? Mm -hmm. So he's part of the tradesman class. He believes himself to be an illegitimate child who was abandoned to an orphanage. He's also epileptic and suffers from irregular seizures. So again, uh, disability visibility right off the bat. He's been living with his father figure, Roger, for many years, but Mm. Roger's health is failing, and he's going to Italy to take advantage of the air being better, because fucking London, Jesus, even in 1815 or whatever. Yeah. Ash can't come with him because risking having a seizure on a ship is a terrible plan. Yeah. So he's gone to hang out with his friends, Nate and Verity Plum, who run their own print shop in London and are, like Ash himself, totally down to eat the rich. Yeah. Uh, although, lately it seems like Nate is getting more and more radical and wanting to print more and more radical things, whereas Verity is looking around at all the radical people getting arrested and executed yep. and thinking maybe they shouldn't be printing that kind of stuff. So, I want to talk about Verity, because mm-hmm. even though this book is called A Duke in Disguise, it's really a book about her she is by far the most interesting yes. character. No offense to Ash, I like him. Oh yeah. But I'm honestly not super compelled by his inner struggle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's just like I'm I have feelings because I was abandoned as a child. Oh, I wasn't. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. We can talk more about that later probably. Verity though is probably my like I was talking earlier about how I think this is the best written book, but I think like Dutch's deal is probably the sexiest one. Mm-hmm. Although governess game was also very sexy. Yes. Uh, but uh, Verity, I think is probably my favorite romance novel character so far. Verity's amazing. <laughs> she is a woman who values her independence. She is a proper co-owner of this print shop with her name on the paperwork and everything. She's an extremely hard worker and very proud of the things she creates. And she is terrible at relationships yeah. because she feels like she can't give enough to her partners. She doesn't like being needed. Yep. And because she's so voraciously independent, she sees most of her relationships as transactional. So she doesn't want people doing things for her because then she'll be obligated to do things for them. Yep. So she's kind of a mess, uh, <laughs> but in a very understandable way where it's really easy to see how like believing in the principles she believes and like really fighting for those principles can really like could make you a bad partner in Regency era England. Mm -hmm. She has recently she's also bisexual. Yes. She's recently ended things with a woman named Portia who apparently shows up in the first book in this series too uh, because she felt like Portia was getting too serious and needing things Verity couldn't give her. Mm hmm. She also hates the idea of marriage, which is a problem for a whole other reason. But before we talk about that, Bob, do you agree that this book is way more interested in Verity than it is in Ash? And is that kind of imbalance between the two leads of a romance novel like super uncommon? I would say yes, you're totally right. I think it is much more Verity's book than it is Ash's Mm -hmm. book. I don't think that's wildly uncommon. I think it depends on who you are reading Mm-hmm. I would say that I see it a bit more in Cat Sebastian's work than I do in some others, but I've definitely okay. read ones where one side of the equation had a really compelling 
difficult problem and the other side was just like i had an emotion once and i hated it and i've decided (laughs) never to have one again and you're like that's not that's not anything that's that's like being three years old and going no i hate bats i'm never having one so it, it is just a case of it depends on the book, I think, even more than it depends on the author. I think you could find Tessa Dare ones where you're right. like, one side you're going, oh, you're fascinating. The other side you're like, I mean, I guess you're there. All right. So the central relationship here is a friends to lovers uh, between Ash and Verity, who have had it bad for each other for years now, but haven't acted on it. Uh, can't relate. (laughs) (laughs) They haven't acted on it because they both know that if they hooked up, Ash would want to marry her because he doesn't want to father an illegitimate child and Verity doesn't want to get married. You know, I suppose these are legit obstacles to them getting together. Oh yeah, for sure. If they have sex, they don't really do contraceptives, so if they have sex, there's going to be a risk of her getting pregnant and Ash doesn't want illegitimate kids, so they have to marry, which she won't do. So, I mean, that's that's yeah. I think that's pretty uh, that's pretty good dilemma. They basically spend the first part of the book giving each other like glances of secret longing <laughs> and telling themselves harshly that they can't waste time thinking about how hot their best friend is right now. <laughs> Again, can't relate. <laughs> um, <laughs> when she's not busy trying to calm down her brother's most blatantly seditious tendencies. And figuring out how to feed the revolutionary friends he keeps bringing home, including Portia's teenage daughter, Amelia. Verity is working on starting a version of their magazine that's targeted to women. Mm-hmm. That's going to be called the Ladies Register, because I believe their uh, magazine is the Register. Yes. She also receives an anonymous document that turns out to be a smut novel. Yeah. Featuring Perkin Warbeck, famous pretender to the English throne. She wants to publish the novel with Ash illustrating it, and we get a wonderful scene yes. where she's looking at other dirty novels published by men and is like, can you please draw me some women who enjoy getting fucked? <laughs> I love it so much. She also suggests a, a suggestion that ends up having great import that Ash respond to a job offering from a lady, Caroline Talbot, who wants somebody to draw plants for her. So Ash goes to Arendelle House, which is where the Talbots live, and meets Caroline, who seems super afraid of her brother. She's like an older lady, and her father is the Duke, and he is, like, in poor health, and her brother is going to inherit the dukedom, and he's a shitbag. Yep. She suggests that the reason she wants Ash to draw her plant specimens, which she has worked hard to collect from all over the world, even though she doesn't, like, leave, she just, like, has them sent to her, Mm -hmm. uh, is because her brother has threatened to burn them, because, again, he's a real piece of shit. Yeah. Ash gets a weird feeling of familiarity from the house, and you see where this is going. It's very obvious. (laughs) Nate leaves town for a few days to go see a hanging, and probably to get himself in trouble by protesting it. Uh, While he's gone, soldiers with a search warrant show up at the print shop and they toss the place before leaving, which freaks Verity out, understandably. Ash is there to comfort her. They go to one of Portia's parties together, get a little bit drunk, and finally start fooling around. But before they can, Nate comes back. Yep. And Verity and Ash convince him that he has to go to America before the soldiers come back with an arrest warrant. Yeah. Believe it or not, there was a time where America was the place you went to have more press freedom. Yeah. Uh, 
<laughs> Nate resists, but is ultimately convinced. He and Ash have a conversation where Ash's feelings for Verity come up, and Ash heads for Arundel House in a bad mood because his friend is leaving the country and because he can't act on his feelings for Verity. But when he gets there, Caroline is like, holy shit, I know that bad-tempered look. Oh. <laughs> You're the legitimate son of my eldest brother who I sent away so my shitty other brother wouldn't kill him, aren't you? And Ash is like, no. <laughs> but in his mind, he's like, crap, probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> as it turns out, not only is he legitimate, he's the legitimate heir to the dukedom, which is a problem since he and all his friends hate rich people. Meanwhile, after Nate leaves for America, Verity and Ash are finally free to be into each other, which they are, but Ash keeps pushing her away, uh, especially considering all this Duke stuff. It's on his mind. Uh, finally, he admits to Caroline that he's probably the kid she's talking about, but he doesn't want to be a Duke, so he's just going to leave. <laughs> See you later. Take care of yourself. She tells him that if he doesn't reveal himself and take the dukedom, her brother will get it when the duke dies. And we have now seen enough of Carolyn's frequent injuries to know that her brother is, again, an abusive piece of garbage. Common theme of this book. Yes. Uh, who will totally hurt people if he gains more power. He's already hurting them. Jesus. Ash doesn't really have a choice in his mind, but he asks Carolyn for a month before he comes out of hiding. And he decides he's going to use that month to be with Verity. Um... Incidentally, correct me if I'm wrong, anybody who's actually experienced this, but this never works. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. We're going to be together for a month and then we're never going to see, we're going to do whatever we want and then we're never going to see each other again. Like, I've known people who have tried to do this and it doesn't work. So, he seduces her and we get a couple of pretty great sex scenes. Yeah. One involving them watching each other come, the other yeah. involving actual fucking. Ash goes to Caroline and is like... Okay, seriously, I, I cannot be a dude. <laughs> this girl would kill me, and I'm really into her. Can you please just, like, leave the house so you can stop getting beaten and I can stop feeling guilty? And she's like, no, that's taking the easy way out. He'll just hurt somebody else. Verity, meanwhile, is really struggling with how attached she feels herself getting to Ash. So she goes to see Portia, uh, but she's busy, so she ends up talking to Amelia instead, who's shown up a few times in the book, so it kind of seems like she's been messing around with Nate. Mm -hmm. But it turns out she's just also super into sedition. <laughs> Verity still doesn't want anybody helping her with anything, especially since the ladies' register is taking off and it's their own thing and it's great. Then there's this wonderful sequence where Ash has one of his seizures and Verity takes care of him. And it's just a really, really beautiful scene mm. where she clearly knows exactly what he needs when this happens and how to make him feel better. And they're both starting to really like the idea of this whole having a life together thing. Yeah. Which naturally is when it all falls apart. Yes. <laughs> uh, because Caroline comes to the shop to find Ash. She's just making sure he's okay because her brother beat the crap out of her and then left town and she was worried that he found Ash and hurt him. So Ash is like, okay, I, I can't I can't keep doing this blissful thing with Verity while my aunt is actively being harmed. Mm -hmm. So he tells Verity the truth, and he goes off to tell the papers that he is actually the Duke, so his uncle will stop harming Caroline and anyone else he might be harming. Verity responds to this <laughs> by writing this amazing screed for the ladies' register about why men are terrible and nobody should ever get married, which is hilarious. But she doesn't publish it, which is probably a good thing. That's just, like, the sort of thing you don't publish. Like, that's for you, yeah. Verity. It served its purpose. You needed to do it. 
You don't need to show it to anybody else, probably. <laughs> Portia keeps trying to get in touch with her because she heard about what happened and she knows Verity needs a friend. But Verity is like, I'm, I'm fine, you know, I don't want to bother you. And Portia is like, bitch, do you know what friendship means? Yeah. Which is something that somebody really needed to say to Verity, so I appreciate Portia for doing that. Ash has been spending some time at Arendelle House, including visiting his dying grandfather, who's basically a dick. Verity finally pulls her head out of her ass long enough to realize how alone Ash must be feeling with all these changes, and she goes to visit him, uh, resulting in a confrontation with Ash's aunt and uncle, and eventually Ash himself, in which Verity is kind of a badass, yeah. and the uncle is, surprise, a violent piece of shit, like even more so than we thought, who they only barely convinced to leave without making a scene, yeah. shall we say. Verity and Ash talk about how there's a potential issue and that there's no hard evidence linking him to the Duke's lost grandson. So even if the Duke does sign like an affidavit or whatever, saying he knew the kid wasn't dead because he, he did know the kid wasn't dead. There's nothing strongly indicating that Ash is that kid. They also talk more about their relationship and Verity says that, you know, they could be friends. <laughs> uh, Ash is like, I don't want to be friends, <laughs> which, you know, I guess is fine. He's being honest. On the one hand, I'm like, Dude, just be friends with her. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm like, that's clearly, you clearly want something more with her. If Just being friends with her is not going to solve the problem. So I appreciate him being up front. Yeah. Caroline comes to talk to Verity while Ash has another conversation with his grandfather. Then Verity finds some of Roger's old letters in the attic, which are correspondence between him and his lover, who mm -hmm. I think, I think ran the school that Ash attended. I believe so. And these letters contain all the information they need to prove that Ash is the Duke's grandson. So he comes over right away to check it out. And then uh, he realizes he'd rather check Verity out instead. Yeah. Uh, they come to the mutual realization that they kind of just need each other no matter what. Yeah. And that leads to another sex scene. And I want to ask you about this one, Bob. Mm-hmm. So Ash and Verity are basically doing a little bondage play mm -hmm. uh, with Verity tying Ash to the bed and doing whatever she wants with him. Mm -hmm. Now, I totally get how this works from like a narrative and character standpoint. Yes. Because Verity's whole thing is independence. And the reason she's so into the idea of being with Ash is that he's not going to try to control her because he is, as one review of this book I read put it, a gentle sad boy. Yeah, he is a gentle sad boy. <laughs> but I'm... Really curious how common or uncommon it is to see a like BDSM stuff in Regency mm -hmm. and b het BDSM stuff in any era where the woman is dominant over the man. Well, Scarlett Peckham is an author who writes primarily historical romance BDSM. Okay, so that's, a, that's actually a genre. Um. I I don't know that it is Scarlett Peckham is out here making it happen. Uh, okay. <laughs> so there are quite a few historical romance novels that use like secret sex clubs as a plot point. And usually in the secret sex club, at some point, somebody is getting lightly tied up. That That's right. very typical. And um, I would say it's about a 50-50 split between whether it, it's a guy or uh, a woman who is in charge. Okay. The most recent ones I've seen have been women, but I am not necessarily reading stuff that has come out crazy recent or right. is older. So 
but I would say it's not uncommon. It's, I would say maybe it appears in like 10% or 5% of books. It strikes me that society at large wouldn't approve of submissive men as an idea. I No, definitely would not. But I think that's exactly the juiciness of it from lots of angles, both as a reader and both like in universe. It's very subversive. And I mean, yeah. I think anybody who has like some hormones can understand the allure of the subversive and go, <gasps> but we shouldn't. But we're gonna. <laughs> Absolutely. This scene was really interesting to me. I, without, you know, going into too many details on my personal life, um, hmm. being tied up is not my thing at all. No, uh, it's fine. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. I, again, I could talk more about it. Not going to get into it. Yeah. Don't think the listeners need that much information. <laughs> However, I will say that I have had the experience of, like, just kind of, like, lying back mm. and allowing a woman to be in charge in a yeah. way. Like, not in, like, a BDSM domination kind of way, but just, like, kind of doing whatever she wants to me. Yes. And that shit is hot. I just have to say. That's there is, in a lot of there romance. Is something yeah, there's, there's like, there's not anything like it. Admit mm. it. Even if it's not, like, your primary thing, highly advisable. <laughs> at least, at least once letting that happen, because it's just a whole, especially for, like, dudes who are, like, used to, like, look, we're guys, are, when we're teenagers, we're taught that we're supposed to masturbate, right? And we, yeah. we're going to do it anyway, whether or not we're supposed to. I, this, again, this is like rampant speculation on my part. I am coming at this from a very cishet white guy perspective. So I don't want to speak for everybody at all. But certainly for me, it's like from the time you start jerking off, you are very much in control of mm -hmm. what happens to you sexually. You are in charge. And mm. I think there's a societal narrative that gets laid over that, too, where it's like where a lot of women, a lot of men feel like they are, should be in charge of the sexual relationship with women or with whoever. And giving up that control is a really cool freeing experience and it's just a whole different kind of sexuality sorry i'm just lost in thought now of like the <laughs> the kind of sexual politics you're exploring yeah. and the nature and it makes me think about how romance novels the way sex is used in them is incredibly complex because it's not just what the author wants necessarily the sex yeah. in many ways needs to be doing some kind of signaling about the relationship and about the world at large i think you get a lot of that like a very common it's so common i couldn't pick out a single example is the big strong guy who recognizes that he is with somebody who has never gotten to just like even see a man naked before or be mm -hmm. with a man and sort of laying back and going, okay, you can do whatever you want because this is completely new and alien to you. Yeah. And you deserve not to have me, you know, control this experience for you. You deserve to get to have it however you have it. And, and this book, it's very much like it's related to the characters, like I said, because 
Verity is getting to be in control, but mm-hmm. it's also relating to the wider world because she is a woman and women don't get to be in control over yeah. men. It's their own little subversive sex act, which I really love, you know? Mm-hmm. So after they fuck, Ash asks Verity to marry him. She doesn't say no, but she also doesn't say yes. And uh, he tells her that she doesn't need to. If she doesn't want to, they'll make it work, which points, dude. That was exactly yeah. the right thing to say. Uh, then we get Ash's court case, but before Ash's court case, we get a wonderful feminist critique of the poem Ozymandias by Percy Pye Shelley, <laughs> which I really appreciated. Cat Sebastian's amazing. Cat Sebastian's out here with like, I got hot takes on Perkin Warbeck on Ozymandias. Yeah. <laughs> here, here with my thoughts. Also, Verity confirms that Amelia wrote the Perkin Warbeck novel with yeah. Nate writing the sexy bits. So now here we are, the last chapter, and one of the reasons I think this book is so much more about Verity than it is about Ash is because the whole thing with Ash, like, being a duke, being the duke in disguise, gets wrapped up in one chapter. I love it. Love it. So they present the evidence, including the duke's affidavit, which he eventually wrote that he knew the child had been sent away. Ash's uncle storms out while Ash is on the stand, and Caroline and Verity are like, oh, shit, he's a violent fuck who burns down buildings. We should probably go after him. Yeah. So they follow him to Arendelle House, where he is indeed attempting to start a fire outside the Duke's bedroom. <laughs> that piece of shit. I hate him. Verity goes up the stairs and he, like, grabs her, but she bites him because he is a fucking, like, bourgeoisie prick who's never actually been in the fight. And she's yeah. like, I love the bit where she's like, did you not think I was going to bite you? Like, have you ever been in the fight before? <laughs> and then Caroline fucking brains him with a newel post. Yeah. Knocking him out. And then <laughs> Caroline like thinks for a second and she and Verity have like some vague dialogue back and forth. And then she just kind of shoves his unconscious body off the top of the stairs and kills him. Yep. And Verity is like, wow, it is such a shame that he accidentally fell to his death by accident. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Love it. So good. After that, Verity finally agrees to marry Ash, giving up some of her independence and control over her life to include him in it. So good for her. And Ash immediately proves himself worthy of this trust by printing a seditious pamphlet and signing his name as the fucking Duke, because now that he has aristocratic power, he is going to use it against the aristocracy. Which again, good move on his part in terms of getting laid, which he immediately does. Yeah. The text um, goes out of the way to point out that even though, and it's done this a couple of times, that even though Verity loves sleeping with him, she still needs to bring herself to climax with her hand, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting. I yes. love that this book portrays a loving, healthy relationship with a slightly different than expected sex life. I think that's yes. actually really, really valuable. Because there is no one way to have sex. No. And everybody likes their own thing and everybody needs different things. And I love the normalization of like, and it's very clear, like she's like, they're having sex and she's like, this is great. This is wonderful. I love this. If I'm going to orgasm, I just need to give it a little bit. There we go. Yeah, exactly. And like, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's perfectly normal. And between that and like the female Dom stuff, like I just think it's, it's really cool. And then we get the epilogue where we learn that Ash and Verity have been living in a house in the country. Uh, She's been writing the ladies register from there while her foreman runs the print shop in London. Again, this is her letting go of some of her control, which is extremely healthy for her. Mm -hmm. 
Roger is getting better in Italy, uh, Nate has safely arrived in America, and Amelia is writing more sexy stories about terrible people, because that is her trash, and we respect her for it. We do! (laughs) That's the end. That's the end of the book. Thank you so much for that mansplanation, Miles. So, all right, you haven't read a whole lot yet, but you've got you've got some under your belt. What did you think of this book as a whole? I liked it a lot. I think that I didn't get into it as much in a sexy way just because it's not my thing mm-hmm. sometimes. You know what I mean? Like I mentioned, you know, like I thought the sex scene where he's tied up was like simultaneously. this. I think it was probably the sexiest scene in the book for mm-hmm. sure. You know, even though, like, that's not exactly my thing, I was still really able to, like, get into it. Mm. A lot of the ways in which they relate to each other sexually in this book are not ways that I find super hot. Yeah. You know, so it, it didn't quite get there for me, but it was definitely sexier than, um, than Eris Effect. Oh, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. Eris Effect is like, oh, shit, there's supposed to be sex in here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But overall, I really, really like this book. I think, like I said, Verity is such a wonderfully realized character. And the book is extremely well written. I it just I have so many highlights, but I have like a million passages highlighted. I and I never do that with books. I like, know. It's so good. It's so fucking good. The writing is just incredible. So yeah, I love this book. Thank yeah, you. I'm I'm so glad. And I, now that takes us to the sights, sounds, and feels of romance. All right, so Miles... What did your elf eyes see? Like I said, I have so many quotes from this book. I know. So like, I'm just, I was, it was almost like stabbing a pin randomly into all of my highlighted material. But um, my elf eyes saw, so in my mind, the part where Verity is trying to like keep her hair in place. Mm. And she says, no matter how many pins I use in the morning, it's all over my shoulders by the afternoon. I could use 500 pins with quite the same result. I think my hair simply opposes order. It's anarchical. Ugh. It's not all your hair, Ash said, digging through his pockets. Just that one strand. It's the Jacobin wing. <laughs> and the reason I wanted to highlight this part uh, in what my elf eyes saw, beyond the fact that it's just a delightful passage, is that during our very first Sight, Sounds, and Feels of Pro Wrestling, Bob, mm-hmm. when it came time to point out what your elf eyes saw, Aww. you pointed out the pins in Corey Graves' hair. I did. Which are not going anywhere, very firmly sealing his pompadour or whatever it is in place. So Corey Graves is a tool of the establishment. Got it. Like I, What I'm getting from this passage is that Corey Graves was never the punk he claimed to be. We are just seeing his true colors right now in our coverage on the next wrestling fan proper. And uh, yeah, he's always been a bourgeoisie fuck. And we know that by the fact that his fucking hair stays pinned in place. This is exactly the kind of conspiracy theories that I I love. (laughs) Hair-based. Bob, what did your elf eyes say? Miles, I love that we're the same person in many ways. I love that Verity Plum is always untidy and somewhat askew. We never hear her described as, like, beautiful or glowing or anything. She uh, always has ink smudges. Her hair Mm -hmm. is always a mess. 
her clothes do not look nice. She's like, she has a gray dress and a brown dress. <laughs> Those are her dresses. And it's not treated as something charming about her that it's like, oh, isn't it cute that she's sort of a mess? Isn't it quirky? Yeah. Yeah, it's not that. It's just she's like, I work for a goddamn living. I kind of get messy doing it. That's how it is. Yeah, I love it. I know. I just, I treasure that her appearance is not about looking good for somebody else or herself. It's just like a product of the fact that she loves what she does and, you know, her hair is just not a priority. Oh my god, there's something in the very beginning. Hang on. Yeah, here we go. As a very young man, he had compared Verity, pen in hand and smudged spectacles balanced on the tip of her nose, to a bird diligently building a nest. Ten years later, he knew it to have been the romantic delusion of a youthful idiot, not to have straight away seen the bloodlust lurking behind the spectacles. She bore more in common with a hawk picking the meat from its prey's bones than with a songbird collecting twigs and leaves. <laughs> that is the second page on my app. Gives you a sense of what he loves about her. Absolutely. All right, Miles, what did your Vulcaneers hear? Usually for Vulcaneers here with these, we do some kind of great line of dialogue from the book. And again, like I said, I just had too many. But... I was going through all my annotations and looking, and I'm like, okay, maybe that one, maybe that one, maybe that one. And then I was like, oh, wait, this one. Oh. <laughs> so it's it's when Verity is testifying at the court case to see if Ash gets to be heir to the dukedom. And they're, like, accusing her of making shit up so that her friend can be a, a duke, mm -hmm. you know, like, so that she can personally benefit. And she says, sir... If you're in the least familiar with my magazines, you'll know precisely in what regard I hold the aristocracy. For my brother's dearest friend, and the companion of my childhood, to now count himself among the most highly ranked men of the land, is a grievous professional embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good! I have nothing to add to that. I just want to just put that out there. I oh. love it. I I love Verity so goddamn much. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Bob, what did your Vulcaneers hear? This was another line from Verity, and, and Verity said this about Nate. Okay. I know you didn't get to talk about it too much in the mansplanation, but one of the things that is really striking about Nate as a character is that it's very clear that he is passionate and believes in this and is truly committed to the cause and yes. the work of it but is also a man. Like, he's just yes. a normal guy. And Verity says, he gets to be a genius while I balance the books and haggle with tradespeople. And Verity doesn't say that in, like, a mean, hateful way or going, you know, it's terrible. Just in a way of, like, that's the way the world is. And it reminded me of this argument that's been made by quite a few people that being a genius is kind of a privilege and it's really only available to people who aren't doing domestic labor. Like, yeah, if you're poor or if you're a woman or anybody like a person who has to do domestic labor for yourself or for somebody else, the amount of time you have to devote to being a genius is really fucking diminished. Or even like the person who runs the shop as opposed to like having the ideas, you know? Absolutely. And I love that the book makes clear that that is part of Nate too. And that it's, it's not great, but that it's also in some ways not unexpected. Like it's, 
you're never going to be able to see the whole picture and that we have to be more inclusive and we have to be more mindful of other people because, you know, you might be really woke in one regard and boy, are you missing some things in another. And I I also love the extent to which Verity calls out domestic labor as labor and is like out here going, you know what? Putting dinner on the table, goddamn work. And it sucks. Although she often has cheese. (laughs) There's a lot of cheese in this book. A lot of cheese in this book. I appreciate that. All right, so Miles, what did your mm. human heart feel? I mean, there was only one option. Oh yes, there was only one line that I had that I could put here. Okay, the best line in the book. <laughs> Other people might like love poems or posies. Verity's heart could be won only by outright sedition. <laughs> <laughs> it's right after he prints his pamphlet oh. at the end. Verity's heart can be won only by outright sedition, and this is why she is the best romance novel character. <laughs> Verity is so incredible. I love Cat Sebastian's. You would love pretty much everything Cat Sebastian has written. It is very this, no but from many different interesting angles. I'm gonna check out more of her stuff. That's for sure. After yeah, this. do it. So, Bob, what did your human heart feel? I feel like this is going to ruin my brand somewhat by mm, choosing oh no. this. I know, I but I have to be true. And it's honestly the bad guy dying at the end. It is the fact that whenever somebody is dangerous and repeatedly dangerous and you don't have any other way of like stopping them, the the priority is to protect people and like it's justice to go this person can't hurt people anymore. Yeah. I get that that is not a warm, fuzzy thing, but I don't would not say that I am a person that takes like the safety of others and protecting, you know, the community as a light, easygoing task. It is like scary and hard and requires us to make decisions that don't feel good all the time. Yeah, I was very happy that that plot point ended with the women killing him. Absolutely. That's just how it should be. It is how it should be. Don't get me wrong, I love me a redemption story. I love oh, a redemption yeah. arc for a total piece of shit. But this ain't your book, buddy. <laughs> Robert or whatever the fuck your name is. Yeah. This book ain't about you. You are you are a side character. Your thing is that you're a violent fuck, and I'm glad you're dead. Yeah, pretty much. So, yeah. And I'm, I love that Caroline killed him. I love that Caroline was the one who pushed him over the yes. edge. Because he was awful to her. Now, yep. hard left. Emphasis on both hard and left. (laughs) Sexiest scene, Miles. I thought the Ash tied up scene was very sexy from the perspective of, like I said, someone who has in the past enjoyed that feeling of not being in control of the experience, Mm -hmm. even though it's not my kink in any way. I yeah. So what was your favorite sex scene? I honestly think it's the first one whenever Ash, who is a virgin, which is always a rare and beautiful treat to get a male virgin, is like, well, here, you show me how you masturbate. And like Uh he watches and he has his fingers inside of her. And then she comes and like what he says is just so lovely. He just says, Christ, Plum, you utter fucking genius. (laughs) And 
it goes on to say he had no idea why that of all things was the praise that came to him, but it was yeah. true. And it was probably a minor miracle that he said anything intelligible at all. But I just <laughs> love that he regards her with this kind of wonder. But mm-hmm. I think the other thing, and I would say I like this about all of the sex scenes in it, I would not say it is erotic to me that I, and I'm going like, ah, oh, yeah, this is the stuff. But right. I love it is that it is playful and it is playful in a way that suggests that they know each other very, very well. Like yes. at one point he's doing something and he says to Verity, well, I wouldn't want your breasts to get bored. And like <laughs> that they just have this kind of dynamic to, with one another where they are chatty and kind of both deeply into each other sexually, but also as friends. And it's it's lovely. I, I get that. Absolutely. The, the whole watching somebody else masturbate thing is just not a thing I've ever really gone deep into. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not a thing that that's a huge turn on for me. So I think that's angry masturbation from <laughs> barbarian alien aside. <laughs> um, oh, you know, I think that's why, you know, I, I didn't quite get into that one as much. Although I do see exactly what you're saying. I love this um, passage from the Ash being tied down sex mm-hmm. scene. She says, look at you, caressing his shoulders and yes, then rubbing a thumb along line. his stubbly jaw. All for me. All for you, he said, as if it were his part in the litany. He had known for ten years, for the entirety of his adult life, that he and Verity fit together, belonged mm. together. And there was no dukedom, no title, no inheritance that could change that. And like this, at her mercy and under her gaze, he hoped she could see that. Ugh. I love it. Yum, yum. I just can really relate to everything that's there going through. I mean, I like, got uh, fucking Sharon and I are kind of a friends to lovers. You know what I mean? I know, that's like you guys are how we got together. So like, I just, even though like some of the sex isn't the kind of sex that, that I usually have or enjoy having, like mm-hmm. it's still great that these two are allowing themselves to explore these feelings that they've had for so long. And, I just really love that vulnerability that he's displaying where he's like, no, actually, I do belong to you. And here you can do whatever you want. Hmm. You know, I I get that that resonates with me. And and I just really uh, love the scene. Dear listeners, before we leave you, we also want to just let you know a bit of a wrinkle that is part of this next round of quizzing is that I'm not going for 10 points. No, no, no. Shooting for the fences. Is that a thing people do in a sport? Aiming uh, <laughs> for the bleachers. Um, I think it's right I think it's down s- the center line. <laughs> what you're looking for is the term swinging for the fences, Bob. All right. <laughs> I just bring you, I just bring swing a bad. fucking like dart guns to everything. <laughs> um, that's how I play sports. So. Yeah. Uh, I am going to try and go for 15, and if I get 15, I get to try and rope in a second person into this Mm -hmm. shenanigans, and maybe I'm hoping for a deflowering. Are we going to get a romance novel, like, virgin to come on and go on this experience with us? It's a hell of a way to have your first, but, you know. It has to be either that, yeah, with a, with two other people, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it has to be either that or the opposite. Or it has to be, like, the fucking writer of the book. You yes. Know what I mean? <laughs> like, There's no in between. 
So assuming Bob reaches 15 points, we are uh, we're going to bring a guest on for our next episode. So that'll be exciting. Yeah, I think also Bob's just been moving through these at a bit of a rapid pace. We've been having a hard time keeping up. <laughs> so let's, let's try the next one out a little bit. Oh. Well, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our coverage of A Duke in Disguise. Bob, thank you so much, as always, for being my guide through this wonderful journey of uh, romance novels. And I especially loved your essay at the beginning of this one. I really appreciated that about the intersection of romance novels and politics. That was just beautiful. So thank you so much. And thank you to the listeners for coming along on this journey with us. Yeah. And thank you, Miles, for always being so game for trying out new books, even whenever I've burned you in the past. Look, you didn't burn me. I just wasn't as into it. It wasn't like a thing where I'm like, oh, my God, Bob betrayed me. <laughs> like, Okay, that's good, because I was like, I could see how you would go. I, I have been betrayed. As I'm sure you're aware of my taste, that some of your taste is trash. It's okay. Yes, I know. That's good. That's- I mean, we have a podcast about professional wrestling, Bob. I don't know if you realize. <laughs> nobody's nobody's throwing any stones here on what people enjoy. I, I just It wasn't my trash as it was yours. The glassest of houses on that front. Absolutely. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you here once again next time we do a romance novel episode, whenever that might be, here on The Next Wrestling Fan, After Dark. The Next Wrestling Fan is produced by Miles Schneiderman with logo design by Claire Mulcairin. Special thanks to Rafael Medina for our theme song, Learn Buckle. You can follow his creative work on Twitter at EarthMofo. Also thanks to Kevin McLeod for additional music and stingers, which are licensed under Creative Commons. Find his work at www.incompetech.com. We're on Twitter and Facebook as the NXT Wrestling Fan. Come talk to us. You can also follow Miles on Twitter at MJ Schneiderman and Megan Bob at Megan Bobness. Visit our website at nxtwrestlingfan.com for show notes, episode transcripts, and more. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email us at nxtwrestlingfan at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. I'm Miles, and I'm here to understand the mysteries of romance. And I'm Megan Bob, and I'm here to help. <laughs> With the aid of Mulder the and aid his borks. My fucking dog. It's very cute. But yeah, I'd say if I had one, if I had one trope in romance novels that I say I'm I'm most into, it's um, uh, that we're gonna eat the rich and bring down the aristocracy. <laughs> I don't know if that's a trope or not, but like, you know, like the sexy thing about you, my dear, is that you 
hate the rich people as much as I do. Like, oh, I, know. I, mean, I, I like it. I like it. I like the, you know, look. I know. We no, there are things that just that just get you diamond hard no matter what. And, you know, <laughs> the downfall of the ruling class is going to do it. I'll have to keep that in mind. I get so erect for guillotines. <laughs> I have no, you have no idea. 